Thank you so much for coming out. I, I see like smiles. This is so awesome. It's like everybody's like this, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, this is such an amazing day for a lot of reasons, and I've been planning this for like months now. And then um, I just wanted to just take just take a little time out. Um, for just to um, recognize the lives that were lost in in Orlando, um, and he, I asked, oh, you know, this is back in December, if he would sing that song just to open it up because I just wanted to say how grateful I was that I was here and that that I would even have the chance to be here. And I asked just this morning because it's, so, it's only two days old. I asked if he could just do something also just to honor the lives lost there. Would you guys mind if he just sings just something really quick? You know, it's it's a gospel song, but it's how I communicate and how a lot of people communicate just the sorrow and grief that we're all going through right now. Okay, thank you. Why should I feel discouraged? And why should the shadows come? Why should my heart feel lonely and long for my heaven, heavenly home? When Jesus is my portion. song because there's so much beauty like I sing because I'm happy it's like in your moments of just doesn't even make sense to be happy and it's just I sing because I'm happy and I love those beautiful moments and just such pain you know salvaging those things so thank you oh all right shall we, <clears throat> shall we let's let's start with let's move from there into grace So what I was hoping we would do um, to further put off the conversation is to have you read a little bit, because today is publication date. Uh, 
So I'm, I'm sure you know the you know the 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 A students in the crowd have, have read the book already. But <laughs> as a lifelong non-A student, um, <laughs> although I have read the book, but I, I I figure there are many more of you who haven't read the book. So I figured we'd start with just a little taste, um, just to get some get a sense of the language and and the, the flow of the story, and then we'll we'll talk for a while, and then we'll have you guys come in and have some questions. So. Okay, so this is the opening. I am dead. I died a nigga a long time ago, before you were born, before your mother was born, before your grandmother. I was 17, still am I reckon. And everyone that was there that night is dead now too, so it don't matter that I was a nigga or a slave. What matters is that I had a daughter who had daughters and they had theirs. Family, I could have saved a whole lot of trouble by telling them the things that I know. But there's some stories that mothers never tell their daughters. Secret stories. Stories that would prove a mother was once young. Done things with men she could never tell. In ways she could never tell. In places she could never. Private stories where love any semblance of love would lead a person like me to the place I was that night in 1848 when I died. For two days and two nights we've been running, me and the child inside me. Pain is trying to get me to stop, make me push away the pain, but I won't push. My pretty yellow dress is stained red and brown now, not by the blood of the man I killed like they think. It's mine. The dark of night's been hiding my running for a while, muffling the sounds of my chest gushing in and out from my own hard breaths. Every few steps, the blue light of the moon sneaks past the treetops and strokes my face, urging me on. The only mercy I get in these hot Alabama woods. The devil's coming, and I have to keep moving for this baby, for me. But the pain's burning so bad now that I can't hardly do nothing but fall against this old tree. Hands slip sliding down its bark, stinging. Barking from the hunting dogs is shooting across the air, bumping around inside me. I have to move faster, run like sister once told me to. I beg my belly, hold on to me, it ain't time. But this baby's got a plan. Its head's at my opening spot, burning hot, ripping my hips wide apart, carving a way out. I hold in my screams and bow over hard in the dirt knees first. A man's voice shouts, this way, she's up this way. I want to live, want this baby to live, but she's betraying me. Every muscle in my body slamming shut, so I push. She's tearing through me, I push. I don't want to, but I push. Screaming mute deep inside myself, pushing so hard, but hollering so low that they can't hear me. A wave of warm water pours out of me, carrying my joy and deep sorrow. Before God and this oak tree, she come, and she don't cry. I guess she want us to live too. I move her into the triangle of moonlight where, the, where my arm is set aglow, and she see me, and I see in her the good part of love. 
The weight of them push me over, these dogs clawing and biting at my back, but the pain ain't gonna make me give her up to them. I gotta protect her, get up, keep running. I feel my legs so I bend them, feel them firm on the ground so I push up. I hold her close with one arm and pull up with the other, I can make it. I tell myself again how to run, counting my steps, one, two, one, two, one, two. A spark of light, a loud pop, nothing. My last thought is to not fall on my baby. Thank you. I'm glad you started with that because I don't want to. I don't want to. Well, I don't want to. Do, I don't want to spoil anything. But I wanted to ask you about writing from the point of view of a ghost or of a a dead narrator, right? I mean, this is not a metaphor. Um, I'm, yeah, there's metaphors in it, but it's not a metaphor in terms of the actual nar- narrative. This particular narrator is. Um, it dies at the beginning of the novel and then goes on and narrates a large chunk of it. So I wanted to talk about that as a kind of strategy and how that how that developed and and how was that more difficult than um, than if she had been alive throughout the course of the the action. Yeah, I wanted her to be able to see things and go places that she wouldn't normally go because she was a she was a runaway slave. So in life she was limited by you know who she was born into the world as and i want young and young and young 17 a runaway slave you know and um and i want to and often you know you don't leave like even now people don't leave their neighborhoods so there she was confined she was because of her situation she was even more confined than other slaves until Mm -hmm. she left so i wanted her to be able to explore the world in different ways ways that i hadn't seen um in other books for instance most narrative narratives that had slaves as um main characters um they were often single there was often the single-mindedness that i saw you know freedom north freedom north but i wanted her to be more than that mm-hmm. in different ways, intellectually and everything. You know, I didn't want her, I wanted her to be like I am. You know, we are all born with the capacity to love, to have friendships, to have, you know, to want things, to dream. You know, every child is born that way. And often when I would read stories about slaves, it was like almost looking at animals in a zoo. You know, you're coming to see them and kind of, and then there they are working. And, you know, they didn't really want anything other than, you know, the occasion. You know, let's go north, let's get away. But I wanted her because I knew that she would, like people have done for thousands of years, she wanted things. Yeah. She falls in love. She, And then as a ghost, she could do even more. How much, um, in terms of creating the landscape, because she is very... She's of her moment, but she's also very contemporary and in a sense like recognizable exactly as you're saying, sort of in terms of her desires, her aspirations. How much research went into the creation of, of this of these characters and of this story? And, you know, especially because it is a novel, how what was the kind of balance between, say, research and creativity or 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 information and intuition in terms of your create your crafting the story? Well, the first thing I wanted to do was sort was to write the story and then find things out. and And people who have heard me talk about this story before know that I've I got this story. I was walking down the hallway with my son. I thought he was going to die, and I had this 
vision, dream, whatever you want to call it, daydream, and it was it was nighttime. I can remember it like vividly. I could see it right now, even in my mind. And I was walking with him, and it was nighttime, even though I knew I was in my hallway. And there was the moon, and we were in the woods, and I knew it was Alabama. And I saw this woman running, this girl, seven, about 17, and she had on a yellow dress that had blood, and she was pregnant. And I could hear her voice. I knew, every, it was like I knew everything about her, and then she, and then she died. So the opening that I read is actually what I saw that day wow. eight years ago. So it wasn't I put. I gave my son to my husband who's here. I was like, just hold him. I need to write this down, what I saw. <laughs> you know, and then <laughs> the rest spoken, of the novel didn't spoken come. Spoken like a true writer. <laughs> right. <laughs> In the delivery just room wait, with a pen. Just and take the baby. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I heard her and I knew her. and But it was all the voices of my grandmother. You know, my grandmother had Alzheimer's and when she would talk or you know sometimes they go back into these memories so sometimes she would be eating at the table and then she would start feeding these imaginary dogs like chicken bones and she'd be talking to them tell and I'm like there are no dogs there and she'd be just and I could hear her and she would revert to it was a different sound she sounded different she was from Alabama she came the last few years of her life here to LA Um, but I heard that Mm -hmm. and so the story to me it was her voice mixed with this woman's voice that I that I saw. And as far as research, I couldn't read a lot of the stuff that I was reading. Like it wasn't, it was too difficult to read. Mm-hmm. So I put it in a way that I could understand it, and I thought the readers would appreciate it more. Right. Well, you, know? you want you're crafting that emotional journey as well as I mean, it's a historical journey yeah. because it's got the historical backdrop. But you're really, it's an emotional journey. It's a it's a mother daughter story that expands outward. There are all of these kind of interesting overlapping relations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about how, in terms of creating the structure of it? I want to go back. So let's start with eight years. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, and originally, at least as I recall, you originally um, there was a screenplay. You were writing it. You were going to write it as a screenplay, and then it became a novel, and it went through. It was a P, it was a PhD. It was an <laughs> MFA thesis. Um, all of these kinds of different iterations. So, can you take us a little bit through the process of how it got created and how it moved from one form to the next? So I didn't. I had written screenplays like for MTV that were on. I was like, yeah, you know, these little shorts and things. So I did. I had no idea how to write a novel when that happened to me when I was walking down the hallway with my son. Right. So I, I had written it out and um, just that that opening, and then I thought. Um, when I wrote the screenplay and then it started winning awards, I just had the story. I knew how it was going to go, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I was sitting in a meeting and they were talking about it, you know, because like you, things that you don't think about in the screenplay, like sound, you know, you have a director that edits it, you have sound, you have lighting, all these things, things that in, as a novelist you have to add, you know, there's nobody adding sound effects for you or the there's no actors, you know, just giving that look or whatever it is. Right. You know, there's none of that. You gotta, and you, you actually have to do that. You have, to, you have yeah. to do your own. Yeah. And I didn't realize, so I was like, I'll just change it from screenplay to novel. Now it's done. I was like, <laughs> but I was, it was terrible. It was terrible. You know, it was terrible. It was just like all dialogue, and it was just terrible. Um, but then I said, I need to get serious about if I want to tell my story, because I wasn't happy in the option meeting. In, in that meeting, I said, I have to finish this. I think I've been given this story from wherever stories come from for every writer. You know, you get a story and you just know you have to finish it. Even if it's your own life story, you have to tell this thing, however it's going to be. So I knew I had to tell the story, and it was my journey. It was my gift that I had to 
take to across the finish line. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's when I started. So I started at UCLA and one of extension. Right. And one of my teachers said, you know, you should apply for this pen fellowship. You have the kind of writing that we think. So then I got, that was my first serious literary thing, pen emerging voices fellowship. Right. That's where we met. Yeah. yeah. That's the first time we met. So, um, and then I just, but I didn't know anything about writing at that. I was a lawyer. I was doing healthcare law and, you know, affordable health care act. I was cra- helping to craft that with politicians. I was like doing all that. I didn't realize that it was actually going to affect my life at that time because I didn't know I had preeclampsia when I was pregnant with my daughter and that high blood pressure made it so that I couldn't qualify for health care. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that because I always had it. I always had an employer. And then when I left to pursue this dream, like I'm going to write this novel, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't get insurance anywhere. Right. I mean, not like it's going to be a thousand dollars a month. I couldn't get insurance. No Nobody, because yeah. I had pre-existing yeah. condition. Yeah. And then I got really sick. And then they told me I was going to die. And then I got the thing in Prague. And I was like, you know what? I'll just get insurance. They can fly my body back. It's <laughs> like I'm going to do this thing. I got this story, and I think it's important. And I've already done, I've already quit my job, so it's too late anyway. I'm closer to this side than this side, so I'm going to keep going. Yeah. So that's yeah. how it it happened. And I've written a lot of short stories since then. You right. know. Um, let's take it through. So you wrote it. So you, you you went into the Emerging Voices program. Then from there you went into the MFA. You worked on the novel as as your thesis. I'm just. I know there's a lot of students in the room. I'm interested mm-hmm. in this idea of of that progression and sort of seeing the book through. I mean, it's a it's a difference from it's a different project I'm, or a different iteration from the thesis to the to the finished book. You know, you finish yeah. the thesis, you think you're done, but actually you're just starting, right? Yeah, you yeah. just start. So when I went from the Emerging Voices Fellowship, I just thought the natural step for me was MFA because I thought I need to get a job because I need health care so I could teach if I have an MFA and I was like four years will pass anyway or three years or whatever it is will pass anyway I could be doing that and I can get student loans that I won't be able to pay back but <laughs> but you know I just I just wanted to stay faithful to it you know as best as best that I could. And when I finished my thesis, it wasn't finished. I thought it was going to be finished. You know, a lot of people go into an MFA program thinking they're going to come out with this finished product that's going to sell. And it does not happen like that. It's not ready. You're not still not developed as a writer. So I had to keep writing, keep practicing. So it's completely different from that thesis, the mm-hmm. first 150 pages to the end that it right. is now, which is 403 pages. And then you work with your agent, you know, I got an agent because of my relationships in my MFA program. And then I found Dan, who took my novel, which was 500, 500 and something pages. He's amazing. And, you know, and he cut it down, but it had been rejected. You know, I felt, I, I told the, MF, my, the MFA students that I talked to, I felt really bad because my agent, who sold everything to, like, you know, Simon & Schuster, you know, like, straight out of the box, one, two days, she's like, this isn't selling. And then I, she would say, talk to the editors because they want to talk to you about it. Right. They want you to change it. But, you know, so I would talk to them, and I would listen, and they didn't have the vision for the not, like, they wanted to change it in ways that I, I thought would hurt the book. Mm-hmm. Like, historical facts, like the Emancipation Proclamation, they wanted to revolve around, you know, that 
which wasn't true. Like they thought it would be a happy day for slaves. Like, why aren't your slaves happy? It's the emancipation. And I'm like, because they don't live in the U.S. I know. (laughs) So things like that, you know, and, and for me, it was about the relationship between the women, the mother and daughter, the women. And when I talked to Dan, at that time, I had one other offer on it. I was talking to Dan and he knew he saw what I saw. He said, this is how I see it as a mother-daughter story, this, and I see it as a story of women, and then that became that, and then I loved him, and I've loved him ever since. <laughs> That's <All right>. Dan. <laughs> he's a brilliant if we, if editor. We, if we keep applauding, he'll blush. I know he's already he's already <laughs> blushing. <laughs> so let's talk about the. I mean, I think one of the interesting things is there those kind of parallels and this idea, in a way, of a world of women. Many of, I mean, there are certainly male characters in the book, and some are even sympathetic, but um, <laughs> but it is really. <laughs> But it is really a world of women in many ways. You know, uh-huh. both the mother and the daughter as uh-huh. kind of, as runaways or, where, you know, where they land. Um, you know, they land with a powerful woman who sort of defines their experience and, and they, you know, and I'm, I'm interested in, in, again, in that as a kind of both an intention going in or, or just how it evolved in the story. In some ways it feels like they're living kind of almost parallel existences over the course of the 15 or 20 years difference between, you know, because you do go back and sort of trace the mother story um so i wonder if you can talk a little bit about that that sense of that world of women and those the the parallels between the the two main narrative threads it was important for me to tell stories of women that haven't been i mean really in 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 history you know we women didn't really develop the rights that we have now you're talking late 60s 70s you know the even even today like even today we're still struggling for equal pay and things like that and who we are we're still finding those things so it wasn't hard but i know that we existed you know just like i knew that there were slaves who existed that wanted things so i intentionally wanted to have women who wanted things, who ran things, and who had to survive. Not just black women. That's why I have a Latina yeah. character. I have, you know, my the you have main a Southern Jewish, Jewish character. Yeah, that was fascinating. <laughs> you know, because I was in South Carolina, you know, for a, an award, and I was, and it had the largest population of Jewish people outside of Europe yeah. lived in South Carolina. You know, like politician and that was fascinating to me so what would happen if these women didn't have men because you know your survival depended on you being married mm-hmm. or with your family so I wanted them to be separated somehow to find their way and I know that there were women that existed like that and I know that there were men who didn't care yeah <laughs> absolutely and they create their own sort of um, their own extended families in a way these women uh, you know in the book in life as well but in the book um, they do that also feels really kind of both you know of its moment but also quite contemporary in terms of those those interactions and those dynamics mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, how about the you know there is there is it's not a political novel exactly, although it is a political novel. All art is political in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious about your thoughts about um, about that, about that quality of engagement. Story, right? The story comes to you, or the character comes to you in a kind of uh, a vision or something. Mm-hmm. But there are all of these these bigger applications of the story, and so I wonder if you can talk a bit about that, whether in terms of the creation of the story, or even if, you know the, your own sense of the writer's responsibility in terms of of those materials. Um, a lot of my work as a lawyer, you know, when, when you're working with cases is you're comparing 
something that happened to someone else to see if it's exactly like this other case. So mm-hmm. you're comparing to say, no, my, you know, if you want them to, my case is different than this guy's case because he didn't do X, Y, Z. Like he didn't go and buy ammo. He just had the gun with him. So it's different. So it's not, that's the difference between like second degree murder and first degree murder, your intention. So little things that you try to show the difference. The thing about American history or about people's history in general, is we're still doing the same exact things as we've always done, packaged differently. So even what happened in Orlando, you know, even the issues of immigration, we've been dealing with these things, you know, right. the same. There's nothing new. It's just new faces. Yeah. And, you know, and there's the division that these... That these that people create, you know, whether it's religion, sexual orientation, all these things that we create to keep us divided. When I wanted to show the humanity, mm-hmm. that we are human beings, we're going through the same thing, and we have to step outside the box to find the solutions. And I wanted them to do that, and I wanted to compare and contrast. It was interesting to me that the Civil War was started by a Frenchman. You know, and you, and when you see people talk about the Civil War and they fly the Confederate flag and all that, they're talking, you know, like, yeah, Americans, you know, and the guy that actually ordered the cannons in Fort Sumter right. was he didn't even speak English till he was 12 years old. Right. He, he was Louisiana. He, yeah, he was in Louisiana on this small little. Th- and then we're still arguing about what it means to be an American. What if you don't speak the language? What if it's Spanish? What if all those things, you know, right. we're doing you got Newt Gingrich today calling for a re revival in some sense of the House on american Activities Committee. Yeah, so. you, you, what are you talking about? Yeah, so it's, it's baffling. What does it mean to be American? So it's like, what it means to be American is to keep the divisiveness that keeps us. So my goal was to show how similar we are and how America is who we are and how we define it right now. Mm-hmm. It's not these ideas or these, these mystic, I don't know, however we've created history to fit ourselves which is not how history actually went down because they would hate that frenchman if they if they knew all the confederate you know going down you know they would i don't think they would really appreciate that about their history that it was an immigrant (laughs) that started your favorite war right it's like like, okay (laughs) let's you know but but i you know, and part of what I want to do is is reclaim our narrative to write a new narrative. You know, to tell the narrative more accurately. Right. Well, that sounds. I mean, so you because I think you're right. On the one hand, you're absolutely right about kind of that aspect of the history. But this is a book that speaks in a way to American idealism or the ideal of that. You know, again, people from a bunch of different backgrounds, bunch of different experiences coming together and kind of, in many ways, help. Not always, but helping each other or kind of living together. So, I mean, how do those two things? fit together for you yeah I wanted to things that bother me I put in you know as a writer you know it's in your mind it's it's there and I wanted to be and I always talk about doing this is it's an opportunity to put a virus in the system mm-hmm. you know <laughs> you think we're that different here you go here's a little virus you know to me- be- just to get people to think differently about who we are like I was reading a post today of a friend who's here who was talking about the word gun control you know that's it's a word the the NRA de- you know developed instead of gun gun safety or something like that. So the words that we choose mm-hmm. and things like no matter where we are, it keeps us from just having real conversations. Like there are people dying. We can talk about this because we're all on the same team. Mm-hmm. We don't have to create all this language that divides us or this history that we make up. We're actually all the same. We have the same or a same commonality and we're human beings above all. So Yeah, no, I completely agree. I want to talk to you about language because language 
obviously all books are made of language, but the language, the narrative voice is really pronounced um, in this book. So in terms of your thinking about language and character or language and words, sort of like what we were, what you were just saying, the choice of words, the choice of expression, the way the character asserts herself in many ways by not just what she says, but how she says it. How did that, how did that voice evolve? Um, I always found that um, my family being from the South, especially like people would treat the way that they would talk as if they were unintelligent. Mm-hmm. You know, and we treat, you know, depending on what the accent is, we'll treat them differently. So I wanted her to be able to express herself in a way, you know, she didn't have the words, which she didn't. And to be able to, but it made it by, give, by giving her the ability to describe um, things with, you know, with fewer words. So it challenged me as a writer because I couldn't just summarize it in one word. Mm-hmm. Like she had to walk through, you know, what that felt like, what that meant. And it actually made, I think it me- makes the readers get closer to her, how she's thinking, how her thought process. And also to her, because you're not judging her, she's not intelligent. You know, she knows what's going on. Oh, clearly. Um, and I wanted it to be that. And just like, I think that the slaves knew and had opinions and, you know, and all that. Well, and also, she's, as you were saying, she's 17. She's an old 17 in the sense of what she's lived through, but she's mm-hmm. 17, but she's still immensely wise. I mean, not only does she know what she's been through, but she's pretty good at figuring out what the score is. <laughs> right, you know? right, right. Um, so, what, let's, I want to talk a little bit about how you put it all together because you're still practicing you practice and you teach and and you're writing um you this you know you've got this book out you're still doing other writing you have a family um what's a day look like (laughs) (laughs) usually like so if i'm teaching i'm usually teaching a couple classes during the day i'm writing whenever i can so you know waiting in line to pick up my children or you know, on my phone. So I use the notes and I'm just writing, writing, writing. Um, but that's, and then I practice in the morning. So I'm usually out of court by 10 a.m. Um, and I have cases months before. So I'm preparing, preparing. And then it's usually short. So I'm only in there for 10 minutes because I'm usually, most of the decisions that I make or the work that's done mm-hmm. is before you actually step into the courtroom, except for sex-related crimes where you actually have to still argue. Um and how, I mean, you were alluding a little bit before in terms of the discussion of ACA, of sort of the relationship or how writing and the law talk to each other a little bit, but mm-hmm. how do or do um, those two fields, is it that you really are pulling out of writing when you're working on the legal side or and vice versa, so they each kind of are a relief from the other, or are they kind of communicating and crossing currents? I think they communicate a lot because I have the same... The struggles that I have as an attorney, you know, do it, especially on the criminal side, like a lot of, of it is about forgiveness because I do post-conviction work. So I erase records or, you know, work toward pardons and things like that. So I'm retelling stories, like retelling a history, or I'm saying this person is sorry for doing this thing. They take responsibility for it and they're sorry. So a lot of what I have in grace is about redemption. It is about forgiveness. And when do we forgive? And what is, is there anything that's not forgivable? So those are things that are in there. I think murder is not, you know, you can get, you could, you know. There's a couple of justifiable homicides in the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you, you know, can you get justice for murder? Right. You know, because you, you can't, justice will be getting that person back. Right. So justice, right, is getting the thing that you lost. Um, 
and you can never get that thing back. So that bothers me. Mm-hmm. So things like that, like you, you know. So is it killing somebody? Does that give them? Does that how you get your justice? Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the key scenes in the middle of the book involves that question when um, you know that question of forgive the necessity of forgiveness rather than vengeance, mm-hmm. which coming as it does is i mean it, it it's a it's a it's an eye opening turn it's it completely makes sense although you don't see it coming you know it's it's a it's a surprise when it comes mm-hmm. um you know so it's that that's a that's that idea in sort of three dimensional narrative action mm-hmm. did you know that that was going to happen all the way through when you were writing did no. You? Yeah. no no <laughs> i didn't know i didn't know anything that happened in that book was going to happen until i got to that point and then it made sense like the same way all the writers in here you write it, of course that makes sense or somebody says something you're like ah oh. right or dan will be like you know cut this thing and then it's like, oh that makes sense of course that happens right i really need those those 50 pages i i guess i don't need those 50 <laughs> i don't need them i don't need it, it doesn't make sense why yeah. is that even here yeah. yeah so what are you working on now do you want to say um are you gonna are you gonna jump into another are you jumping into another novel you said you're writing stories and shorter stuff are you are you yeah. what's 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 the what's the plan I have two novels that I'm like playing with. I don't know which one is going to just grab me, but one is about a caregiver. So I've kind of moved along in that one about a woman who cares for people who mm-hmm. are dying. And, um, and I'm curious about the stories, not that you have to tell us anything about them, but I'm curious about the balance because I know you, I've read your essays as well. Balance between long and short form as a writer, um, not even necessarily which you prefer, but what, what the short gives you that the long doesn't and vice versa. I don't, I think for me right now, because I don't write many short stories, it just, I just write until I'm finished. <laughs> There's no, That's I write till it's That's done. Right. Like with the novel, I was just writing it and okay, it's done. I'm, you know, it's done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. right. Should we turn it over to some, uh, some audience questions? Yeah. All right. Whose hand's going up first? Hey, David. That's a sort of odd question. Um, when you were reading, it struck me that you had this experience where you somehow received this voice. And I'm wondering whether, I mean, I've had experiences where I've written stuff that I had no real idea about, and it transpired that that was stuff that had happened in my family that I had no way of knowing. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, were you channeling something you think which, which was sort of cultural or familial, and have you learned? you know a lot about your family history and are there things that you grew upon from that or you know is that stuff coming through your DNA or how does that how does that work that's a good question you know I read something about how pain comes through your DNA I don't you know so maybe that but I often wonder, somebody asked me before I started writing this book, why did your family never leave from the small town? You know, because they were, you know, enslaved in the same town that they end up living in. So East Tallahassee, Alabama, which is the setting of this, that's where they were actually, you know, long generations of slavery was in that town. And they never left after the Civil War, after the Emancipation. And I never knew why they left. So we would go there in the summers and spend time. I don't know why my mom and dad were the first ones to leave that town after the end of slavery when they all migrated to the West. Um, So that was always a question that I had. Like, what happened there? Why didn't you go? Why would you stay there? You know, as if they had a choice. Or, you know, as if people think that way. But it never made sense to me why they didn't leave. So I don't know, maybe DNA. I don't know. That's a good question. 
Are there any uh, particular authors you've looked to while working on this project or other projects where even if you're not telling the same uh, story, you're like, oh, I want to borrow this from this person, or oh, I'm, you know, this is really amazing. This has like influenced me in some way. I think everything that I read, every short story, every novel that I read influenced me. The only book that I would not read was Beloved, which I read <laughs> since then, because everybody kept saying, oh, this is Beloved, because anytime you're writing a, a book about slavery, it's Beloved, right? <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, mine is not going to be like Beloved. <laughs> but I didn't know then that that's just what people say. Like, if you're a, black, if you're a writer, oh, you're a writer, Oprah's going to get that. You're like, you're like really you're like, but they say that to everybody because that's the only thing people know to say so I wouldn't read it because, but then I, you know I've since read that but um, I love stories I read Little B which I loved um, Todd Goldberg's I lo- Todd is my mentor so I would read some of his short stories just the emotion of things um, Deanne Stillman about her the way she wrote settings and she really personified settings because I know one of the things that I struggle with was writing a setting that felt alive. Like, I didn't want it to feel like a map. You know, some people write, you read it, it's like, and then over the hills of this, and to, I was like, I don't want to do that. I want it to be alive. So, um, Toni Morrison, um, I loved Alice Walker, you know, um, uh, Women of Brewster's Place. I read a lot of that. Um, because I like the short stories because they just talked about women and briefly and throughout history. Mm-hmm. Hey, Red. Natasha, Natasha, you're such a good reader. I wondered, as you were writing the book, were you reading aloud? Um, no. <laughs> you know, it was... It was when I got in the program that year, and as an emerging voice, you know, you start reading your stuff and you start editing it. Like even just now, I was like, edit. Oh, I should have used a different word there. You know, I'm ed- you're editing when you read out li- loud. You could hear the things that you would change in the voice and the pattern. So I recommend it, but I wasn't reading it out loud. You know, as I was writing it. So how did you learn to read so well? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I don't. It just makes sense to me. It just makes sense that that's, I could hear the voice that, that I wrote it with. I could hear. So it's almost like I'm just a second behind her. Like I, could, I, I don't know if that makes sense. So even like with Dirty Laundry, when people come up to read, when they read with that voice that was in them, when they wrote it, it just it's a different read. You know, no poet voice. You know, there's, there's, some, <laughs> there's something about that moment when you're into it and people can connect to that. So I just try to read like that. Yeah. Hey, Zach. Uh, Dovetailing off the one you just made, do you think that there was interplay between your role in Dirty Laundry Lit and the act of writing and the act of creating forward to And how did those two sort of play off each other? I think the best part of Dirty Laundry is the community and just that feeling of positivity when you leave, that you're not doing this for nothing. Like, there are people who love this. You know, there are people here today, right? That, you know, and we're the same. We're a community. And you know with Shades and Shadows, which is your, you know, by creating that, it's just energy. So it wasn't, it wasn't, it's the love of words, you know, that, so that's the interplay. It gives me, it's an engine. It makes me say, you know what, get up and go right. 
if that person can get up there and tell this story and make it that awesome, I can get up and I can write another page. Or I can write one sentence today. Or, you know, so it's just that that synergy of people and community. Actually, I want to ask you about that, that question of community and the idea of writer as a kind of literary citizen, not just a, you know, the stereotype of the writer as someone who sits in their room all the time and doesn't interact with people. Um, But in fact, which is about 78% true, but the other 22%, which is the part that makes us get dressed and take a shower and come out and do things. But I'm curious about your sense of the writer's role, that the importance of literary citizenship and how you, how it gets activated. Yeah, you have, to, you have to be, if you're a writer or you have friends that are artists, show up to their things, you know, support them because it's so lonely. You know, most writers are introverts anyway. And even if you say, you know what, once every six months I can put some clothes on and I can go out. I can make it, you know, to this one thing. Okay, 30 minutes. I'll just promise myself 30 minutes and then, okay, an hour. I could do, I could do 10 more minutes, you know, or something. But you have to do, because we depend on that. We, and, and for me, when I look at like this, you know, Grace is in its second printing. It got all these great reviews and all this. I can't even believe it because I'm looking at the books, and this isn't about this. Just isn't about great. There are books that are that get made all the time that are great books that don't get attention. That's just what happened. And I just look at this book. I'm like, how is this different? You know, I, I wanted to write a good book. I feel like it's a good book. It's the a book I would want to read. But when you see it, like up there with like girls that got a million dollar advance, or the book by um, Yaya, I can't remember it, two million dollar advance. These are books that were planned like months and months. And to see Grace up there with these same books, you know, with Emma Klein and Walter Mosley, it's how does that even happen? It's the book, but it's also a community of people. People who are like, this is a good book. This is I've I've come out for this. I'm I'm here supporting this. I bought this book. I want to talk about this book. That's how how a community can compete against a two million dollar book industry because an organization, <laughs> a corporation that puts two million dollars behind a book is putting the people behind that investment. That two million dollar investment. And to see this, you know, and Counterpoint is amazing anyway. You know, they have a great publicist. There's Dan. There's a lot of people in play. But it's also being a good person. Mm-hmm. Like, good as far as show up to people, support people. Even, and it's hard, too, when you see other people doing really well, and then you feel all the jealousies and insecurity. That, you know, you're like, uh. But you still got to, <laughs> you still got to get up and go, you know, because we're all in the same boat. Right. We're all in the same, because it's going to be your turn next. And then you're going to need that person who just went to write a blurb for your book. And then that person that's behind you is going to need you to write that recommendation letter. And is going to need you to write a blurb. You know, so it's all connected. And it's just an engine of togetherness. And when, if you're in your room, you're not going to make those connections and meet those people. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. exactly right. Other questions? Hey, Meredith. Hey, Natasha. I um, comment and question. I... I've been feeling really numb since Orlando happened. Mm-hmm. We were reading from your book. I felt it for the first time, really. And um, thank you for that. And I just wonder if you, if there's anything about that you feel too. The the numbness from or the connection between the way your reading made me feel about something that happened 300 mm-hmm. years later and a different. 
I was thinking about that on the drive here, actually. I felt I was, for me, it's God. So I was asking God, I said, I feel like I have so many holes. Like how, you know, all these blows, you know, even growing up, you know, with the police violence. My dad was a police officer and he was not, he's, and my grandfather died, you know, being beaten by police officers. He was a World War II veteran, 4th of July. He was beaten to death in front of his children. And my father became a police officer thinking he'd be exempt. And I remember moving to Santa Clarita in our car, being surrounded by police officers, pointing a gun at our car. And I'm waking up in the back of our station wagon and seeing that. And, if, and I just feel like, I know when I... <laughs> When I think about the people, when they describe the people standing in that doorway when this guy comes out and there's people and they're just firing in that thing. I remember being eight years old, you know, in the back of the car, like, that could have been us, you know, if my dad would have moved the wrong way. Like, he had his gun. He had a gun because he was a sheriff. So he, and he had to say, I'm going to pull out my gun. And I'm watching through the thing. So all those moments, I've, it's me all the time. So there's not a moment where I think that's not me. I just think, how can I grow above these holes, all these holes that are in me, and still have hope and love and still tell a story that can make people say, look, you know, this is happening still. This happened then. It's happening now. But we can still have hope and love and not be divided. Because the, the fallback position is that we just divide. We just separate. And we start labeling everyone. You know, and I don't want us to be there. So there's this tree I wrote about recently called Oak of the Golden Dream where I live. I had to write an essay about it. And it's, it's where they f- first found gold in California. And it's all gutted. Like, because people came thinking they were going to find gold. So, so it's like this big cave in the middle of the tree and it grows still around this hole and it's like reaching up it's still green it has acorns that fall there's little oak trees all along there but I think about that all the time like we have to do that we have to grow above our holes like we have to extend and keep going because there's something better we could still plant these little acorns that become something else and touch other people's lives but you know even though we have these holes so yeah it affects me a lot Violence does, but there's beauty, you know, when we get through our grieving. And in, in addition to that evening with, with your son in the hallway, where it, it spurred your your thoughts of the of the book, mm-hmm. were there other moments where you had those overwhelming urges, or did it all come out of you from that one moment? And you know, in addition to obviously your regular writing process, but were there other like overwhelming points? Yeah, I had one more when there was a friend of ours who was Jewish and she was a prostitute and she lived down the street from us. And when she died, I knew what the rest of the book was about. And that happened like two years, six months later. And then I knew what the, I just knew. And then I just had to piece it together. Yeah. One more? I was curious about being a writer versus being a a woman of color right there. Mm. Well, <laughs> as a, um, as a, I mean, I always say generally speaking as a woman of color, but I think it's probably, I think literature has a moral responsibility. I think it, I can't write for art's sake. So I, I love that people can say I, I do art for art's sake. I think as a woman of color and somebody who's socially active, I feel like I, I don't have the luxury to just write 
just, you know, a pretty, th- I, that's beautiful that people can do that. And sometimes, you know, maybe I'll get to do that. But I feel like <laughs> there's so much work to do. There's so much growth that has to happen around these holes. And if I get a stage or a platform, I want to be helping other people and not just helping myself. Yeah. yeah. Should, do, should we ask for one more? See if, have one, if there's one more right in the front. Hey. When and how did you know that you were a writer? <laughs> I, I used to write scary stories for my sister when she was little. I've always told stories, so I saw myself always as a storyteller, and then I would write them out like board games and things like that, and just slowly just wrote. And in high school, I wrote a poem, but I never considered myself a poet. They read it for like the graduation. And I was like, yeah, that was just that thing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but yeah, so it's just a, but I've always known. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. And we hope to see you soon.